Letter Fifteen of the Shirley Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Shirley Letters from California Mines in eighteen fifty one and fifty two by Dame Shirley, Louise Amelia Knapp Smith Clapp. Letter the Fifteenth. Mining Methods, Miners, Gamblers, etc. From Our Log Cabin, Indian Bar, April 10th, 1852. I have been haunted all day, my dear M., with an intense ambition to write you a letter which shall be dreadfully commonplace and severely utilitarian in its style and contents, not but that my epistles are always commonplace enough, spirits of Montague and Savenia forgive me, but hitherto I have not really tried to make them so. Now, however, I intend to be stupidly prosy, with malice aforethought, and without one mitigating circumstance, except, perchance, it be the temptations of that above-mentioned ambitious little devil to palliate my crime. You would certainly wonder, were you seated where I am now, how any one with a quarter of a soul could manufacture herself into a bore amid such surroundings as these. The air is as balmy as that of a midsummer's day in the sunniest valleys of New England. It is four o'clock in the evening, and I am sitting on a cigar-box outside of our cabin. From this spot not a person is to be seen, except a man who is building a new wing to the Humboldt. Not a human sound, but a slight noise made by the aforesaid individual in tacking on a roof of blue drilling to the room which he is finishing, disturbs the stillness which fills the purest air. I confess that it is difficult to fix my eyes upon the dull paper, and my fingers upon the duller pen with which I am soiling it. Almost every other minute I find myself stopping to listen to the ceaseless river song, or to gaze up into the wondrous depths of the California heaven, to watch the graceful movements of the pretty brown lizards jerking up their impudent little heads above a moss-wrought log which lies before me, or to mark the dancing water-shadow on the canvas door of the bake-shop opposite to follow with childish eyes the flight of a golden butterfly, curious to know if it will crown with the capital of winged beauty that column of nature's carving, the pine-stump rising at my feet, or whether it will flutter down, for it is dallying coquettishly around them both, upon that slate-rock beyond, shining so darkly lustrous through a flood of yellow sunlight, or I lazily turn my head, wondering if I know the blue or red-shirted miner who is descending that precipitous hill behind me. In sooth, Molly, it is easy to be commonplace at all times, but I confess that, just at present, I find it difficult to be utilitarian. The saucy lizards, the great orange-dotted butterflies, the still solemn cedars, the sailing smoke-wreath, and the vaulted splendour above, are wooing me so winningly to higher things." but as i said before i have an ambition that way and i will succeed you are such a good-natured little thing dear that i know you will meekly allow yourself to be victimized into reading the profound and prosy remarks which i shall make in my efforts to initiate you into the mining polity of this place now you may rest assured that i shall assert nothing upon the subject which is not perfectly correct for have i not earned a character for inquisitiveness and you know that that does not happen to be one of my failings which i fear will cling to me through life 
by my persevering questions to all the unhappy miners from whom I thought I could gain any information? Did I not martyrize myself into a human mule by descending to the bottom of a dreadful pit, suffering mortal terror all the time lest it should cave in upon me, actuated by a virtuous desire to see with my own two eyes the process of underground mining, thus enabling myself to be stupidly correct in all my statements thereupon? Did I not ruin a pair of silk velvet slippers, lame my ankles for a week, and draw a browner horror over my already sunburnt face, in a wearisome walk, miles away, to the head of the ditch, as they call the prettiest little rivulet, though the work of men, that I ever saw? Yea, verily, this have I done for the express edification of yourself and the rest of your curious tribe, to be rewarded, probably, by the impertinent remark, What? Does that little goose Dame Shirley think that I care about such things? But, madam, in spite of your sneer, I shall proceed in my allotted task. In the first place, then, as to the discovery of gold. In California, at least, it must be confessed that, in this particular, science appears to be completely at fault, or, as an intelligent and well-educated miner remarked to us the other day, I maintain that science is the blindest guide that one could have on a gold-finding expedition. Those men who judge by the appearance of the soil, and depend upon geological calculations, are invariably disappointed, while the ignorant adventurer, who digs just for the sake of digging, is almost sure to be successful. I suppose that the above observation is quite correct, as all whom we have questioned upon the subject repeat, in substance, the same thing. Wherever geology has said that gold must be, there, perversely enough, it lies not, and wherever her ladyship has declared that it could not be, there it has oftenest garnered up in miraculous profusion the yellow splendour of its virgin beauty. It is certainly very painful to a well-regulated mind to see the irreverent contempt shown by this beautiful mineral to the dictates of science. But what better can one expect from the root of all evil? As well as can be ascertained, the most lucky of the mining Columbuses have been ignorant sailors, and foreigners, I fancy, are more successful than Americans. Our countrymen are the most discontented of mortals. They are always longing for big strikes. If a claim is paying them a steady income, by which, if they pleased, they could lay up more in a month than they could in a year at home, still they are dissatisfied, and in most cases will wander off in search of better diggings. There are hundreds now pursuing this foolish course, who, if they had stopped where they first camped, would now have been rich men. Sometimes a company of these wanderers will find itself upon a bar where a few pieces of the precious metal lie scattered upon the surface of the ground. Of course they immediately prospect it, which is accomplished by panning out a few basinfuls of the soil. If it pays, they claim the spot and build their shanties. The news spreads that wonderful diggings have been discovered at such a place. The Monte dealers, those worse than fiends, rush, vulture-like, upon the scene and erect a round tent, where, in gambling, drinking, swearing, and fighting, the many reproduce pandemonium in more than its original horror, while a few honestly and industriously commence digging for gold, and lo, as if a fairy's wand had been waved above the bar, a full-grown mining town hath sprung into existence. But first let me explain to you the claiming system. As there are no state laws upon the subject, each mining community is permitted to make its own. Here they have decided that no man may claim an area of more than forty feet square. 
This he stakes off, and puts a notice upon it, to the effect that he holds it for mining purposes. If he does not choose to work it immediately, he is obliged to renew the notice every ten days, for, without this precaution, any other person has a right to jump it, that is, to take it from him. There are many ways of evading the above law. For instance, an individual can hold as many claims as he pleases if he keeps a man at work in each, for this workman represents the original owner. I am told, however, that the labourer himself can jump the claim of the very man who employs him if he pleases to do so. This is seldom, if ever, done. The person who is willing to be hired generally prefers to receive the six dollars per diem, of which he is sure in any case, to running the risk of a claim not proving valuable. After all, the holding of claims by proxy is considered rather as a carrying out of the spirit of the law than as an evasion of it. But there are many ways of really outwitting this rule, though I cannot stop now to relate them, which give rise to innumerable arbitrations, and nearly every Sunday there is a miners' meeting connected with this subject. Having got our gold-mines discovered and claimed, I will try to give you a faint idea of how they work them. Here, in the mountains, the labour of excavation is extremely difficult, on account of the immense rocks which form a large portion of the soil. Of course, no man can work out a claim alone. For that reason, and also for the same that makes partnerships desirable, they congregate in companies of four or six, generally designating themselves by the name of the place whence the majority of the members have emigrated, as, for example, the Illinois, Bunker Hill, Bay State, etc. companies. In many places the surface soil, or in mining phrase the top dirt, pays when worked in a long tom. This machine—I have never been able to discover the derivation of its name—is a trough, generally about twenty feet in length and eight inches in depth, formed of wood, with the exception of six feet at one end, called the riddle. Query, why riddle? Which is made of sheet-iron perforated with holes about the size of a large marble. Underneath this colander-like portion of the long tom is placed another trough, about ten feet long, the sides six inches, perhaps, in height, which, divided through the middle by a slender slat, is called the riffle-box. It takes several persons to manage properly a long tom. Three or four men station themselves with spades at the head of the machine, while at the foot of it stands an individual armed with the shovel and hoe. The spadesmen throw in large quantities of the precious dirt, which is washed down through the riddle by a stream of water, leading into the long tom through wooden gutters or sluices. When the soil reaches the riddle, it is kept constantly in motion by the man with the hoe. Of course, by this means, all the dirt and gold escapes through the perforations into the riffle-box below, one compartment of which is placed just below the riddle. Most of the dirt washes over the sides of the riffle-box, but the gold, being so astonishingly heavy, remains safely at the bottom of it. When the machine gets too full of stones to be worked easily, the man whose business it is to attend to them throws them out with his shovel, looking carefully among them as he does so for any pieces of gold which may have been too large to pass through the holes of the riddle. I am sorry to say that he generally loses his labour. At night they pan out the gold which has been collected in the riffle-box during the day. Many of the miners decline washing the top dirt at all, but try to reach as quickly as possible the bedrock, where are found the richest deposits of gold. The river is supposed to have formerly flowed over this bedrock, in the crevices of which it left, as it passed away, the largest portions of the so eagerly sought-for ore. 
The group of mountains amidst we are living is a spur of the Sierra Nevada, and the bedrock, which in this vicinity is of slate, is said to run through the entire range, lying, in distance varying from a few feet to eighty or ninety, beneath the surface of the soil. On Indian Bar the bedrock falls in almost perpendicular benches, while at Rich Bar the friction of the river has formed it into large, deep basins, in which the gold, instead of being found, as you would naturally suppose, in the bottom of it, lies, for the most part, just below the rim. A good-natured individual bored me, and tired himself, in a hopeless attempt to make me comprehend that this was only a necessary consequence of the undercurrent of the water, but with my usual stupidity upon such matters I got but a vague idea from his scientific explanation, and certainly shall not mystify you with my confused notions thereupon. When a company wish to reach the bedrock as quickly as possible, they sink a shaft, which is nothing more nor less than digging a well, until they strike it. They then commence drifting coyote-holes, as they call them, in search of crevices, which, as I told you before, often pay immensely. These coyote-holes sometimes extend hundreds of feet into the side of the hill. Of course they are obliged to use lights in working them. They generally proceed until the air is so impure as to extinguish the lights, when they return to the entrance of the excavation, and commence another, perhaps close to it. When they think that a coyote-hole has been faithfully worked, they clean it up, which is done by scraping the surface of the bedrock with a knife, lest by chance they have overlooked a crevice, and they are often richly rewarded for this precaution. Now I must tell you how those having claims on the hills procure the water for washing them. The expense of raising it in any way from the river is too enormous to be thought of for a moment. In most cases it is brought from ravines in the mountains. A company, to which a friend of ours belongs, has dug a ditch about a foot in width and depth, and more than three miles in length, which is fed in this way. I wish that you could see this ditch. I never beheld a natural streamlet more exquisitely beautiful. It undulates over the mossy roots and the grey old rocks like a capricious snake, singing all the time a low song with the liquidest murmur, and one might almost fancy it the airy and coquettish Undine herself. When it reaches the top of the hill, the sparkling thing is divided into five or six branches, each one of which supplies one, two, or three long toms. There is an extra one, called the waste-ditch, leading to the river, into which the water is shut off at night and on Sundays. This race, another and peculiar name for it, has already cost the company more than five thousand dollars. They sell the water to others at the following rates. Those that have the first use of it pay ten per cent upon all the gold that they take out. As the water runs off from their machine, it now goes by the elegant name of tailings, it is taken by a company lower down, and, as it is not worth so much as when it was clear, the latter pay but seven per cent. If any others wish the tailings, now still less valuable than at first, they pay four per cent on all the gold which they take out, be it much or little. The water companies are constantly in trouble, and the arbitrations on that subject are very frequent. I think that I gave you a vague idea of fluming in a former letter. I will not therefore repeat it here, but will merely mention that the numerous fluming companies have already commenced their extensive operations upon the river. As to the rockers, so often mentioned in story and in song, I have not spoken of them since I commenced this letter. The truth is that I have seldom seen them used, though hundreds are lying ownerless along the banks of the river. I suppose that other machines are better adapted to mining operations in the mountains. 
Gold-mining is nature's great lottery scheme. A man may work in a claim for many months, and be poorer at the end of the time than when he commenced, or he may take out thousands in a few hours. It is a mere matter of chance. A friend of ours, a young Spanish surgeon from Guatemala, a person of intelligence and education, told us that after working a claim for six months he had taken out but six ounces. It must be acknowledged, however, that if a person work his claim himself, is economical and industrious, keeps his health, and is satisfied with small gains, he is bound to make money. And yet I cannot help remarking that almost all with whom we are acquainted seem to have lost. Some have had their claims jumped. Many holes, which had been excavated and prepared for working at a great expense, caved in during the heavy rains of the fall and winter. Often, after a company has spent an immense deal of time and money in sinking a shaft, the water from the springs, the greatest obstacle which the miner has to contend with in this vicinity, rushes in so fast that it is impossible to work in them, or to contrive any machinery to keep it out, and for that reason only men have been compelled to abandon places where they were at the very time taking out hundreds of dollars a day. If a fortunate or an unfortunate, which shall I call him? does happen to make a big strike, he is almost sure to fall into the hands of the professed gamblers, who soon relieve him of all care of it. They have not troubled the bar much during the winter, but as the spring opens they flock in like ominous birds of prey. Last week one left here, after a stay of four days, with over a thousand dollars of the hard-earned gold of the miners. But enough of these best beloved of Beelzebub, so infinitely worse than the robber or murderer, for surely it would be kinder to take a man's life than to poison him with the fatal passion for gambling. Perhaps you would like to know what class of men is most numerous in the mines. As well as I can judge, there are upon this river as many foreigners as Americans. The former, with a few exceptions, are extremely ignorant and degraded, though we have the pleasure of being acquainted with three or four Spaniards of the highest education and accomplishments. Of the Americans, the majority are of the better class of mechanics. Next to these in number are the sailors and the farmers. There are a few merchants and steamboat clerks, three or four physicians, and one lawyer. We have no ministers, though fourteen miles from here there is a rancho kept by a man of distinguished appearance, an accomplished monte-dealer and horse-jockey, who is said to have been, in the States, a preacher of the gospel. I know not if this be true, but, at any rate, such things are not uncommon in California. I have spun this letter out until my head aches dreadfully. How tiresome it is to write sensible <clears throat> things! But I have one comfort— Though my epistle may not be interesting, you will not deny, my dear M, that I have achieved my ambition of making it both commonplace and utilitarian. End of letter 15. Recorded by Rachel Allen, near Yosemite, California, July 25, 2008.